Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Word up. It's that biblical, biblical theology, theology study of the person of God. Attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics. And Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet. So please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology. That phrase alone, they give some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough. Uh-huh. Just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication. A work of art from Genesis to Revelation. From God's creation to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11.36 Biblical theology encompasses who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes. So clever we behold his endeavors unfold. The greatest story ever told. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got to see the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. Thank you, Lord. He gave us the word providing us correction yeah. and the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our reflections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our death, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. Biblical theology, friends, that is what we do here at Theology Matters, or that is what we try to do here. You can find us at Theology Matters with the Palouse on Facebook. Uh, Theology Matters with the Palouse on Facebook. Be sure to go to our page, check us out, 
So our podcasts are, uh, we've done several shows um, dealing on basically every kind of topic you can imagine when it comes to apologetics and theology. We've been going about three years strong. Uh, we've held several uh, debates as well. So you can go to our Facebook page and find a lot of those uh, podcasts and shows we've done, uh, shows on the occult, shows on Mormonism, uh, Roman Catholicism, abortion, etc. We try and try and pride ourselves on having good reasoned, rational dialogue. So today we have a very fun show for you guys. Uh, our friend Tony Arsenal. Uh, is joining us again, and you guys uh, probably remember Tony. He's been on a couple times. He uh, has done a show I believe we did on the Trinity, and he also participated in a debate uh, last year uh, on our show towards October. During during the month of October, I like to try and focus uh, the shows primarily on the Protestant Reformation, and that's, that's just because a lot of times I think um, some of the issues that are still there between Catholics, Protestants, Eastern Orthodox, uh, is sometimes overlooked. And you just don't hear a lot, uh, especially in the apologetics world, uh, about some of the differences. And as Protestants, how do we respond to some of the challenges that uh, that come our way? So this October, we'll be doing that again. We'll uh, take a few different shows, probably three or four shows, I've got a couple of debates already set up and, and working in progress where we're going to be able to do that uh, for the Reformation. So got some exciting stuff ahead of us. But today Tony's going to be on the show and we're going to basically uh, be answering your questions, uh, dealing with the Bible, theology, apologetics. Uh, does God exist? Is the Bible true? Uh, we're going to be looking at some of those things, uh, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, any any questions you guys have at all dealing with apologetics or theology, etc., we want you to give us a call, 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907. Let me, let me tell you a little bit about Tony. He's a recent graduate of Gordon-Conwell Theological Semin- uh, Seminary in South Hamilton, Massachusetts. Uh, he's received a Master of Arts uh, in Church History and Theology and was awarded uh, the Baker Award for Excellence in Theological Studies. He's presented, uh, presented papers with Evangelical Theological Society and Gordon-Conwell Theology Forum. His current research uh, and interest is Trinitarian and Christological Theology and Reformed Systematics as well as Early Church uh, History. And uh, we're just really blessed to have him. You can find his blog at reformedarsenal.com. And uh, he he's, does a lot of good articles there as well as book reviews. So we are glad to have him on. Tony, are you there? I am. How are you doing? Doing good. Doing good. It's kind of hot out, uh, hot out my way. It's like 100 degrees out here in the Carolinas today. How about you? Good, good. Just uh, plugging along, trying to do some reading and writing when I can. Yeah. It's been a while since we've had you on the show, and we wanted to bring you back on and uh, just have a lot of different topics I thought we could uh, we could talk about and address. And um, did I leave anything out before we move on? Is there anything you wanted to add? I know you're married. Yeah, I'm uh, married. My wife and I attend a local church, and we do our best to serve uh, where we can. 
Um, I'm currently employed as a as a transplant secretary at the local hospital here. Um, just kind of working and trying to find opportunities to share my faith as we go along and um, living the dream. <laughs> there you go. So a lot of these these questions uh, have not been rehearsed or anything like that. I'm pretty much just going to shoot some of these questions off the cuff and uh, and see what Tony's response is. Again, feel free to call in 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907. Open phone lines for the next two hours. Would love to hear from you guys. So, Tony, I guess the first uh, thing we should talk about is this tragedy that happened uh, last night, actually not too far from me, uh, out in Charleston. Um, yeah. As a as a Christian, how do we how do we make sense of this? What are some things you can you can say uh, to those who who maybe are affected by this or other tragedies maybe they're going through? What is what is some practical advice you could give us? Yeah, um, I think that anytime something like this happens, we as Christians have kind of an instinctive um, us versus them kind of mentality, and we we tend to put up walls. And I think um, that's natural. And in some senses, I think it's even healthy. You know, we we are a subculture. We're not uh, part of the uh, broader culture in the same sense uh, as other people might consider themselves. And so we do have to be uh, aware of the fact that we, uh, for one reason or another, we are going to end up with the target. Um, and sometimes that comes in the form of kind of a um, an ideological attack. And I, I think more more often in, in increasing ways, uh, it's going to come in the form of actual physical attacks. And I think we have to be ready to uh, really live out the words of Christ and truly love our enemies. Now, that I don't think that means that we have to, you know, send um, thank you cards in the mail to people who, you know, take away our liberties or come into our churches and attack us. But, um, you know, we really need to take time praying. I, I don't know much about uh, the story, you know, just kind of seeing stuff pop up in, in news feeds and whatnot. Um, but my understanding is that it, it seems like, you know, obviously a person is innocent until proven guilty, but it, it seems like it was a, a pretty troubled young man who did this. Um, and, you know, he's he's not uh, he's not innocent of his activities. He needs to be accounted for. Um, and, and there's justice that will be done. But ultimately, we have to remember that we're, we're all, in one way or another, also victims. Uh, we're victims of the fall. We're victims of what's happened to our uh, our human nature as we've been affected by Adam's original sin. And so they think there's a balance that we have to strike, where some, some people are going to want to say, well, you know, he's just a victim, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't come down on him. And then other people are going to want to say, well, in no way is he a victim. Um, but I think about, you know, I was living in Boston when uh, the Boston Massacre happened, not the Boston Massacre, I'm not that old, uh, when the Boston <laughs> bombing happened. And um, my wife and I were actually at a movie when we, uh, when it happened. And so we came out of the movie and um, we got all, we had all these texts on our phones. Um, and, and it wasn't until we got home that we started seeing the news and realizing we had friends who were running in the marathon. We had friends who were down watching the marathon and, um, I remember sitting on the bed with my wife that night and praying and, and my, my prayers started out very imprecatory and very much find this person and, and make him pay. And as I started to pray and really allow God to move in my heart that night, I started to feel sorry for this person and realize that, you know, it's really only God's grace that makes him 
uh, makes me not the vile sinner and makes me not the person who, you know, hates people enough to, to murder them. Um, and I started to pray for his salvation. And I think that's really the approach that we need to take. Um, we need to pray that this young man um, pays for what he does, you know, what he did. There needs to be justice uh, temporally. You know, there's there's a legal system and there's punishments and there's fines and there's potentially, um, you know, even potentially execution. I, I don't know what the state laws are down there, but um, ultimately we should be praying for him. We should be praying that God puts Christians in his life who are going to call out his sin for what it is, but also show him that we are loving people who forgive him if he's willing to repent of his sins. Um, we should never wish uh, that another person gets the judgment that we uh, were graciously spared of. We should always be hoping that God seeks to redeem that person as well. Uh, but we know that God, you know, God is a God who knows what he's doing. It's not like this surprises him. It's not like this took him off guard. And so we also need to remember that, um, you know, the trite, everything happens for a reason kind of response, um, although it's it's technically true, is not particularly uh, pastorally helpful. But we also need to not fly so far to the other side that we paint a picture of a God who's just sitting up there wringing his hands together trying to figure out what to do about this. Um, God is is going to work his plan and, and the good of his people through this, um, even though we, we may never exactly understand how that happens. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. That's that is uh it's kinda good to have that balanced uh balanced perspective that we need to to keep that we're all fallen and desperately need uh desperately in need of Christ. So how how what are some ways we can we can um use this opportunity of, of what has happened to share our faith at work because I mean already these kind of questions are, are already coming up. And um, I want to. I want to also, after you answer that, we'll talk. We'll talk a little bit about the nature of God, um, as well. Because the way I see sure. some Christians respond to this is really awful as well. But what are some ways we can we can we can? Uh, I don't want to say this to use this as far as capitalizing or something, but I mean to to share our faith right. with our friends. Sure. Well, I think the first thing we need to do is we need to be people of integrity. So um, I think as Christians, we look at the fact that this young man went into a church, and we assume this is motivated by some kind of anti-Christian uh, mentality. And that may or may not be the case. I don't I don't think that we'll know that for quite some time. But I think we also need to recognize that he went into a church that was predominantly black. And um, it, it's probably equally as likely, if not more likely, that that was probably more of the motivation. So I think we need to be people of integrity and not try to appropriate the, um, I guess, oppression is, is the right word. We, we need to not appropriate this um, this assault that happened on a particular people group. We need to not appropriate that to ourselves unless it, it actually is appropriate to do so. Um, but assuming that he is, um, assuming this was motivated by some sort of anti-Christian um, sentiment, I think we need to um, be honest with people that we're not surprised and that this doesn't shake our faith. Um, you know, when you look back at the stories of the early martyrs, um, it wasn't necessarily the martyrs who um, made grand displays of their faith and made long, elegant you know, apologies for their faith that really made the impact. It was the people like Perpetua and Felicity who who went quietly but with dignity to their deaths. And so to recognize that 
uh, and show the community around us that we're not afraid um, to face death if we need to, I think speaks volumes because in reality, there's, there's only one, uh, one religious worldview that can have assurance of faith and can look at death and, and not fear it. Um, you can't say that about Islam. You can't say that about Judaism. You can't say that about atheism. You can't say that about any of the other religious perspectives. Um, we can stare death in the face um, and recognize that, you know, death isn't, isn't something that's pleasant. It's not something any of us want to go through. But we also recognize that it's not, you know, death doesn't have the final word in our story. Um, and so I think that really speaks volumes. Um, and I think for, for you, it probably looks a little different if you're, you know, you're in the community where there's probably people who have been directly impacted by this um, tragedy. But these kinds of things happen all over the country. You know, the Boston bombing was um, was motivated by, uh, you know, anti-American sentiment. You have these kinds of things happening all over the place. Um, I think to not try to give trite explanations to people and to not rely on sort of the, the scripted responses that we, we tend to. Um, you know, when you, when you come up against someone who's really hurting, um, it doesn't really do them any good to give them a treatise on God's sovereignty. You know, handing them Jonathan Edwards' Bondage of the Will and a, a feel-better card isn't really going to cut it. And so I think we need to be able to, to be willing to just sort of sit with someone and mourn with them and realize that God will move through this, but sometimes he, he has to wait. I suppose you shouldn't, shouldn't say he has to wait. Sometimes he chooses to wait. Uh, until mourning has occurred before he brings um, he brings joy and he brings restoration. So being willing to just sit with people as they mourn and, and acknowledge that we don't have all of the answers, um, which you know I know is probably not particularly popular when you're talking with apologists to say we don't always have the answers. Um, but even Jesus, um, you know, with the Tower of Siloam and the the that passage in Luke, he doesn't say, well, I have all the answers. Um, he did have all yeah. the answers. He knew he knew exactly why things happened. But uh, in his context and in that particular instance, it wasn't pastorally helpful to him uh, toward to the people who were hearing him to say, yep, this is exactly why it happened. These are the reasons that, um, you know, that my father had for allowing this. Um, instead, he used it to say um, tragedy happens and we don't know why it happens. And the question isn't um, why did this happen to them or why did this happen over there? The question is, why didn't it happen to me? Um, because apart oh. from Christ, we all deserve that same fate. Um, and to just to turn this into an opportunity to talk about, you know, I've, I've already seen some people who are um, starting to say things like, well, that church had terrible theology. Um, God must have been judging them. You know, you see that kind of stuff come out and you just want to, you know, if that's the case, if, if, this happened because that church had terrible theology, then whoever is saying that that church oh, had boy. terrible theology is probably next on the list for God's judgment. Um, <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's not a place we need to be. That's not our job. It's not our, our role to try to interpret, you know, events and say, this is why God did something that he did or why he allowed something he allowed. Um, you know, we're called to step into suffering and step into tragedy and really be a source of stability and strength for a community and a, a, a people that are hurting. So I, I think really just, um, you know, not 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 capitalizing the, on this in some sort of shady, unethical way where we um, we attribute statements to people that they didn't say. We appropriate events that that don't really have anything to do with us. 
um, that's kind of the number one thing is we need to be people of integrity. We need to let our yeses be yeses and our noes be noes. Um, but also, you know, being willing to mourn with people, being willing not to give the easy answers because the easy answers, even if they're right, aren't usually helpful. Um, and just yeah. being present in that community and not retreating and saying, well, it wasn't my church. It was the church down the road. And so I'm going to let their pastoral staff handle it. Well, the pastor, well, the pastor of this church was killed, but the other staff there, they're mourning just like everybody else. You know, so if you're a pastor in the area calling and saying, I know you, you guys probably have your hands full of visitation right now. Do you need us to go into, into the hospital or into your community and uh, spend some time with your people praying with them? Um, calling your own church to pray for that community is another huge thing that we, we really need to do. Um, you know, each local church is, is a local church, but we're all part of the capital C church. And so this wasn't, this wasn't that church over there that had a shooting. It was the church that had a shooting. Um, this is a, this is a tragedy for all of us. And we really need to support our, our brothers and sisters through prayer and through um, any sort of practical means that we can. Yeah, that's that's a very very good answer, and would definitely encourage people to do that. Uh, be praying for them and and see if you can help in any way. Um, so as I you know as I've this has kind of unfolded, and I've, I've started reading some some articles and just reading different people's posts and stuff. On another extreme, you have Christians who will say that. Uh, God had no knowledge of this. God had nothing to do with this. When tragedies, when evil events happen, uh, that's that's the devil, and God just... Um, it, it's almost like, and I understand why. The, the, you don't want to say God is the author of evil. You don't want to say God is the author of sin, and, and I get that as well. Um, but I think there's, there's a problem. It's problematic when we swing to the other side of you know, basically God had no idea this was even going to happen and, uh, you know, this kind of thing. What do you say to to, to that? Yeah, well, I, I'm going to say something that is probably not going to be terribly well received by large portions of the church. But I, I think that in, in all honesty, I'm, I'm glad that you brought this into kind of the nature of God. And I'm going to go at it in a little bit more of a technical way. Um, when we start to posit that God didn't have knowledge of something or that he, the origin of his knowledge of an event isn't rooted in his decree of that event. Um, so you take kind of a, the classical Arminian uh, understanding primarily of salvation, uh, but I think it, it applies to the rest. The idea that God only knows the future decisions of free creatures because he looks and sees what those free creatures would do, not because he decrees what they would do. Right. Um, right. What you've really done is you've made it so God uh, comes upon that knowledge by observation. So he's learning about that knowledge in a way in the same way we are. So while it's true that he always had that knowledge, his knowledge has to come logically after the event. So God, God couldn't have known about it logically prior to the event. Um, chronologically, yes. But in terms of, um, God's knowledge is an apprehended knowledge. It's a knowledge that is perceived rather than a knowledge that is um, decreed by God. And really, you know, Arminianism, Molinism, obviously open theism, pro process theology, um, really any theology that doesn't have uh, the origin of God's knowledge based in his, de in his decree um, struggles with this. And where this really becomes a problem is um, if you're, if you're, 
in line with most of the Western understanding of, of God, um, God's knowledge is not independent from his being. It's not independent from his nature. So his knowledge is not the same thing as his being, but it's, it's integrated in a way that we, we don't necessarily understand. Well, if you have God's knowledge being determined by something outside of himself, you've now, in a way, caused his nature to be determined by something outside of himself. So you've lost the aseity of God, the, the non-contingency of God. God couldn't be who he is without us taking the action that we take. And so process theology, um, the idea that God is dependent on the world for his being and he's developing as the world develops, is the only logical. Oh, James White is famous for saying that open theism is the only consistent Arminianism. Well, I'm going to go one step forward and say process theology is the only consistent Arminianism because Arminianism really can't grapple with the fact that God's knowledge and his being are related to each other without having this dependency on creation for his very nature. Um, and so we really have to be careful when we start to try to solve these more uh, practical apologetic problems like the problem of evil, not to wander into this sort of no man's land where we don't even realize what we're denying. So, um, you know, I, I think anybody who's followed my writing or, or uh, listened to me in the past knows that I'm not a terribly, uh, I'm not a terrible supporter of William Lane Craig and his Molinism. Um, and I think he, he tends to develop some of his theological positions based on what works, based on what's apologetically valuable. Well, this is one of those areas where if we do that, we really stray off into some other areas. Another famous person who's done this is, is Greg Boyd, um, and really just about all of open theism. They start with a, a, a sort of a problem, and the problem of evil in, in Greg Boyd's case, he starts with that and tries to reconcile, well, how can God be good if he, if he knows that this evil is happening? And then he ends up saying, well, that's because God doesn't know that this is going to happen. He doesn't have the knowledge of the future. Um, right. And that, that just really strays quickly into something that's not Christian. Now, I don't, I'm not saying that Greg Boyd's not a Christian. I know a lot of people would. I've met Greg Boyd. I think he loves Jesus. I think he trusts that Jesus, um, I, I don't want to say died on the cross for his sins because he, he doesn't support um, you know, penal substitution or, or satisfaction theory, but he recognizes that what Christ did on the cross is absolutely necessary for his salvation. It's not something that could have, he could have earned on his own. Um, so I, I think he's a Christian who's very wrong about a lot of really important things. And I would say the same thing about William Lane Craig. I think he's a Christian who's very wrong about a lot of really important things. Um, but as we are starting to try to explain to people well, you know, God didn't know this was going to happen. He, he, you know, he didn't see it coming, or he can't violate the freedom of of creatures, and so he had to let it happen. Um, we are presenting to the world a God who doesn't exist, and if right. by somehow God God uses our imperfect presentation, which all of our presentations are imperfect, but if He uses our imperfect presentation, that doesn't validate the fact that we got it wrong. It just means that God is able to work through us getting it wrong. And I think that's not to say that the kind of classically reformed position doesn't have its own kinds of challenges. Um, you alluded right. to it. It's very difficult to reconcile how God could have not only known this was going to happen, um, but in some sense decreed that it was going to happen as part of the unfolding you know, creation drama that he ordained in eternity past. Um, how do we reconcile that without saying that God is in some sense the origin of evil? Um, I'm not exactly sure how we do. 
Um, I don't yeah. think that the Bible necessarily does. Um, you know, the book of Job, sometimes we paint that as, um, well, this is this is the Bible's theodicy, but it's not a very good theodicy if it is, because God never answers Job's question. He never says, this mm. is why I allowed it to happen. He kind of hints it to us, you know, that the Holy Spirit hints it to the reader in the beginning with that, that prologue where he's kind of giving us a glimpse behind uh, the veil, penetrating into God's heavenly court and the dialogue that's happening. But at the end of the day, God doesn't ever tell Job, well, you know, I had this bet with, with Satan, and, you know, he said you were going to curse me to my face, and I won the bet because I knew you weren't going to. Um, what he says is there are some things that you don't need to know. There are some things that you don't need to understand. Um, and part of being a servant of God is trusting him that he's going to do what's best, even if we can't understand it. Um, and that's, uh, to be honest with you, that has very little um, apologetic value. It has very little apologetic value. And that goes back to what I was saying earlier about not just giving the canned answers. Um, everything I just said, I believe with the very fiber of my being. But you would never catch me going into a church right now in uh, in South Carolina or anywhere around there that this tragedy has happened and saying to people, well, God had a reason. He knew what he was doing. Um, you yeah. know, I will point to the sovereignty of the Lord and I'll point to the fact that um, God does not desire um, his children to be hurting. He doesn't desire his people to be slaughtered. Um, but on some level, we have to all also acknowledge that he has a plan that he's executing. Um, you know, I'm sure that the son didn't desire to be nailed to a cross. It wasn't something he really looked forward to. Um, but it was, you know, his plan too. He planned it from the beginning, you know, before time, along with the father and the spirit for this to take place. Um, but we have to be really careful as we try to formulate our answers to these uh, really difficult questions that we don't uh, we don't defame who God is um, because we're trying to make God's nature and his character approachable. Um, on some level, God's nature is not approachable. We can never really get to it. Uh, we can never really understand it. And we have to be willing to you know, throw our hands in the air at times and say, I don't know, but I trust God to do uh, what is right because he's the Lord and he always does what's right. Yeah, that's that that is that is good. Great points. And I think just practically, um, you know, yes, it's it's one of these things where just we're not going to know exactly why, uh, but there is comfort in knowing that God is 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 in control. Things aren't just spinning out of control and catching him by surprise and he's you know, like a CNN news reporter on the sideline, you know, telling us what's what's happening. Uh, he's he's involved and he's uh, he's sovereign over it, so we can we can trust that. Um, yeah, and, and one that. one last oh, point. Yep. One last point I think too that's important is there's really only you know this is this is simplifying it a lot, but there's really only two things that we can tell people when something like this happens, or or a variation of these two things. We can either say um, we don't know why, but God has a purpose in this. This happened according to a plan. And um, God is going to do something that glorifies himself and ultimately is good for his people, including the people who were killed. Uh, right. In some mysterious way, this was uh, ultimately for their good. That's mm. one option. We can say God, God had a purpose. The other option we can say is God had no purpose. There was no purpose. This was utterly meaningless. This was meaningless evil with no purpose. Um so well it you know well we don't want to give the trite answers we don't want to go you know we don't want to stand up at the funeral and say god did this on purpose he knows what he's doing so stop crying 
Um, we also don't want to say, sorry that your loved one got shot by an evil person. Um, you know, God's crying over it too, uh, it, but it didn't really have any meaning. Um, we either can say, and again, I'm not trying to advocate um, our, that we build our theology based on practicality, but those are the only two options. God, you know, your loved one's death had a, had a meaning and a purpose, even if we don't know what that meaning and purpose is, or it had no meaning and purpose. Um, and when I look at that, the, the person who wants to say that God, um, God is, you know, is, is either got his hands tied by, by the limits of human freedom or that God um, simply didn't know what was coming or whatever, um, they have basically the same answer as the atheist in the end of the day here. They can say, God had no meaning. You know, this is a meaningless, purposeless um, event that has no redemptive value whatsoever. Now, we as people can give it value. You know, you start to see that how atheists, how they, you know, justify morality. Well, we give value. We give purpose. We are the ones that determine our value in life. Unfortunately, the athe or the, you know, the the kind of classic open theists and Arminian response to this kind of event is it sounds a lot the same. We're the ones that have to give meaning. We're the ones that God is going to have to to work good in, in order to bring some sort of meaning out of this meaningless event. So I, I just think that that in itself is a is a, a sobering thought about, you know, really there's only two options. I'm not trying to paint a false dichotomy. Um, if someone has an idea of what a you know a middle ground, what that you know excluded middle might be, I'm happy to hear it. But I, I can't think of a of a of a I can't think of something to put in between that dilemma um, that is rational as far as an explanation. All right, friends. Uh, phone lines are open, 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907. Maybe we can talk a little bit about uh, the nature of God, Tony, and some of God's attributes. I've been... Uh, meeting with a couple of uh, friends and kind of taking them through um, R.C. Sproul's book, Everyone's a Theologian. And uh, great little book. I mean, it's not super in-depth, but it's got, you know, some, some good uh, couple of pages on all kinds of different topics. And uh, I love I love R.C. Sproul. I just think he's, he's brilliant. So uh, let's look at maybe just a few of the things of, of God. Um, providence. We hear this term used a lot. Uh, what is sure. what is providence? Sure. Well, uh, I learned this from R.C. Sproul, so maybe we should just get the book and read it um, all out <laughs> on the air here. But um, providence, uh, you know, it, it comes from a Latin word. The, the word providence comes from uh, the combination of the word pro and videre, which means to see. So it, it refers specifically to God looking forward. And, uh, you know, we just talked about how that views problem. I didn't choose the language. I probably wouldn't have choose, chosen to use that language. But um, we we look at God seeing what's necessary and bringing about what is necessary. So when we talk about God's providence, you know, he has a plan. He's the one that's formulated how things are supposed to unfold. And he's the one that's working sometimes uh, behind the scenes, sometimes sort of immediately as far as not through a, a means, but directly in, in creation to bring about his plan. So that can range anywhere. Um, providence is kind of a general term. It can range anywhere from, you know, natural events like a hurricane or an earthquake or a snowfall um, to, you know, kind of a chance encounter with an old friend. Um, or, you know, for example, um, I got a job one time uh, just kind of 
as a chance encounter because I ran into somebody who happened to be looking for somebody. You know, I ran into him at Chipotle and we had a discussion and I needed a job. They had an opening. So he told me to apply. That was God's providence just as much as, um, you know, the snowstorm that may have kept me from uh, driving out to go somewhere getting in a car accident or the snowstorm that caused me to get into a car accident. Those are all examples of God's providence. Wow. That's uh, that is it. Really, is amazing. I think we don't spend enough time just kind of meditating on on uh, the attributes of God and just how He He how He works. Um, you had mentioned earlier about the decrees of God. So, what does it mean when we say uh, God has decreed uh, certain events? Sure. So, um, typically in in reform theology, at least. When we're talking about the decrees of God, uh, we can be talking about a couple different things. Um, you can get into the kind of discussion and debate about infralapsarianism and supralapsarianism. And what we're talking about in those debates is there are a series of decrees that God makes kind of in eternity past. And we're, we're talking about logical priority, not chronological priority. Now, I'm not entirely convinced at this point that this is really a helpful way to talk about it, um, but we don't really have any other options. And so kind of broadly speaking, we talk about how God decreed to create. There was a point where he decreed and decided that he would create. We talk about a decree to allow or permit the fall. So he, uh, he decrees to uh, create. He decrees to allow the fall. There's another decree where he uh, decrees to have a people. And some people would split this into two decrees, but in the act of decreeing to have a people that is limited and not the you know the complete totality of humanity, he also uh, logically decrees that there are going to be people who are not his people. And then finally, um, he kind of decrees how all of this is going to come about. Now, the reason I say I'm not sure this is helpful is because um, in reality, these are kind of all one decree. Um, Classically speaking, God kind of decrees a single thing. He decrees to have creation unfold a certain way, and that certain way includes the fall, it includes redemption, it includes who would be saved, who would not. Um, so that's kind of what we're talking about when we talk about God's decree. Now, sometimes we speak more generally, we talk of kind of God's decreed will or God's decretive will. And what we're talking about is that God has uh, determined that all things should happen in a certain way. So we're using this in kind of a non-technical sense. And when we're looking at the past, we can say with confidence that everything that did happen is because of God's because God, God decreed it. So I can look at this shooting and say, in eternity past, God decreed that this shooting would happen. Now, we can say that God allowed it. We can say that God permitted it. We can say that God caused it. Um, in some senses, I think those are uh, sort of similar, that they all sort of mean similar things. Um, but because we want to be careful to not say that God is the author or immediate cause of evil, we tend to talk about evil things being allowed, um, typically meaning that God uh, decrees them and, and uses secondary means to bring them about. And then we talk about God's decree causing things as well. Um, so God decrees to cause faith in the elect. He decrees to cause um, uh, cause salvation to occur in a particular way. He decrees um, you know, the, the boundaries of our nations and the times and places we would live, you know, we see that in Acts. So when we're talking about the decree and we're looking at the past, we're really saying we know that what happened is what God desired to happen because God is sovereign, so nothing happens apart from God's desire. When we're looking into the future, 
we have to be careful because we don't have a way to know with certainty what it is that God has decreed for the future. So that's where we have to be cautious of, of saying, well, I know that God intends me to go into ministry. Well, I, mm-hmm. I think that God may intend, you know, a person who wants, who's got a, uh, got a desire to go into ministry there, they seem to be gifted in teaching and pastoral counseling. Um, you know, they've been, they've been blessed with a certain life circumstance that allows them to study properly and become equipped to teach and preach the word. Um, we can say that, yeah, all, all signs seem to indicate or all, all evidence seems to indicate that that's what's going to happen. And if that's what happens, then we know that's God's decreed will. Um, but we have to be careful. Um, I know a lot of people, you know, I graduated seminary a couple years ago. I know a lot of people who came into seminary saying, you know, it's really God's will for me to go into ministry. Um, I even have one one friend that I won't name who, you know, the first thing he said to me was, you know, I, I came to seminary because there was a traveling prophet. Uh, who came to my church when I was in youth group and told me that he was prophesying that I was going to be a, a pastor. Um, it, it's kind of a sad fact, but a, a good a good percentage of people who go to seminary and graduate who came in intending to go into pastoral ministry never do that. Um, and so we, we should be cautious of saying that something that's happening in the future is or is not God's will, because we just simply can't know. And when we say something is God's will, um, even though it, in reality it was us who spoke out of turn, a lot of times what that does is it makes it look like God is a liar or that God is not faithful to bring about what he intends. If I say, well, God really wills me to be a pastor, or God really wills me to be a teacher, um, and I convince enough people that that is God's will, I probably even convince myself that it is, if that doesn't happen, then there's a level, there's a certain t- you know, level of disenchantment. Um, and I think most commonly that probably happens with young men and women who meet a special person and they, they convince themselves that they know for a fact that this is who God intends for them. Now, God, God is sovereign. And if, if a person is going to be married, um, he has a particular person that he created for that person to be married to. We're never going to know with certainty until the vows are said who that person is. Um, so when we convince ourselves that person A is who God, you know, wills me to marry, um, we a lot of times end up really disenchanted with God if that doesn't work out. So we just have to be careful with talking about what God has decreed in the future or even what God has decreed for right now. You know, I can say, well, God decreed me to be on this radio show tonight, but the power might go out in five minutes and I'm not on the radio show anymore. You know, so we just have to be really cautious not to speak for God where he hasn't told us to speak. Um, you know, we should focus on the fact that God has brought about certain moral you know, obligations. He's given us wisdom in the scriptures for us to make decisions by. Um, we shouldn't necessarily be seeking um, to try to discern the, you know, the unique will for who am I going to marry or where am I going to go to school or what am I going to do for a job? All those things are important and God has a plan, but he usually doesn't reveal those things to us. Um, I'll go out on a limb and say he never with 100% clarity reveals those things to us. Well, there you go. So when events like this happen, that's, that's sometimes grievous when you have certain people that are, get a little time on TV that will say things like this was uh, God's way of punishing certain people. Right. And yeah, so you should never, should never do stuff, stuff like that. It's just, right. uh, you're just not in a position to know anything like that. Yep. Um, let's, uh, let's do this. Let's look at, um, let's look at the doctrine of the Trinity for a moment. So where I'm at, uh, here in the South, there is a lot of, People either call them Jesus only or oneness Pentecostals, and I've been sure. familiar with them before I moved here. But coming to the South, 
uh, just amazed at how many churches around here hold to oneness theology, baptismal regeneration, etc. Let's tackle those two topics. Uh, Sure. Oneness and baptismal regeneration. Sure. So, um, what, when the, oneness Pentecostalism, and I, we had a, a pretty in-depth discussion on it on the last time I was on the show, so I, I won't go into too much depth on this part of it, but it's really important to recognize that not all Pentecostals are oneness Pentecostals. So, yeah. um, you know, as we're, we're, we're driving around, we see churches that are, you know, Pentecostal this, apostolic that, um, you know, if those of us who, who uh, has studied theology and spent time, you know, exploring the church, we kind of know what the hallmarks of, of the charismatic movement are, the, the things they name themselves, that kind of stuff. Uh, not all churches that consider themselves Pentecostal are oneness Pentecostals. So when we're talking about oneness Pentecostals, what we're talking about is a specific doctrinal position um, that would, you'd be surprised what kinds of big figures hold it. But, um, and what that position is, is that there's a single person in the Trinity, and that person um, takes different roles at different times. And so, the, you know, the classic Christian doctrine of the Trinity is that um, there are three divine persons who uh, fully share and fully participate in a single divine nature. Now, uh, I formulated that a little bit differently than, than some of your uh, listeners may have heard, and I'll explain that in a minute. But the key parts of that is that there's three persons, one nature. Um, so what, what it means to be God is to be a person who has the divine nature, and there are three persons who have that single divine nature, so there's one God. Now, what oneness Pentecostalism does, and like most heresies, they're trying to make something that's very complicated simpler, is they'll say there's a single divine person. Um, and that person, typically in the Old Testament, we see is kind of playing the role of the Father. In the New Testament, he's playing the role of Jesus up until Pentecost. And, you know, in the Ascension, Jesus goes back to the throne room and then he comes back as the Holy Spirit. And now the Holy Spirit is kind of who uh, presides over the church and is is how God uh, reveals himself to the world. So kind of key words to look for if you hear someone talking about God manifesting himself in three pers- or three ways or three manifestations, um, Jesus only baptism, people who resist the um, the uh, impulse to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. You tend to see oneness Pentecostals will only baptize in, in the name of Jesus. And what it really is, is it's, an, it's a really ancient heresy. Um, it may be one of the first Trinitarian heresies that there were, is in uh, the early parts of the church, probably in the second uh, century, there was a, a man named Sibelius who taught the exact same thing. Um, that that God was a single person who who presented himself to the world in three ways. Um, sometimes uh, people will say that God presents himself to the world in these three ways at the same time. And they have to do that to try to reconcile things like the baptism or the Mount of Transfiguration um, or in some ways even even the cross. Um, and in, in, in most cases, though, they'll say that the, the one person never presents himself in more than one way at a time. Um, and so we have to be careful. You know, you mentioned R.C. Sproul. I love R.C. Sproul. Um, I mentioned it last time. I think of him kind of like grandpa. He's like theological grandpa. He's the person that I want to go sit, you know, sit it at his feet and have him read the Bible to me and explain to me theology. But the way that he phrases some of his theology, especially in the Everyone's a Theologian book, um, it borders on some of this language. Now, R.C. Sproul is not a modalist. He understands that there are three divine persons, but he'll say things like, um, 
God reveals himself to the world in three ways. Well, if you make the one God a single agent who's doing something and that something is revealing himself in three ways, that's really not, in terms of what we're saying, that's not all that different than what the Oneness Pentecostals would say. Oneness Pentecostals, like T.D. Jakes, would say, yep, I'm right there with you. God is one, uh, one God who reveals himself in three ways. Well, we have wow. to be more careful than that. Um, so, and I think as far as kind of apologetic tips and how do we handle that, we just take them to the baptism, or we take them to the Mount of Transfiguration, or we point to the many, many verses where the Father is, uh, the, uh, where Jesus is talking about how the Father loves him and loved him before time. Um, a person doesn't love themselves and call that the love between a father and a son. Now, we all should love ourselves on some level, um, because you know we're image bearers. God has called us to take care of ourselves. We should love ourselves. But I would never say, well, I love myself, and my love is the kind of love that a father has for a son. That just doesn't make any sense. But the oneness Pentecostals, they have to try to do that kind of stuff when they get to something like uh, the baptism, because the father speaks from heaven, the son is being baptized, and the Holy Spirit is descending as a dove. Well, you've got all three persons of the Trinity active and interacting with each other. That's, that's the main thing. They're not just there they're interacting with each other in interpersonal ways. Right. Yeah, well, I think um, some excellent points that I that I think would uh, give some modalists some very uh, hard times dealing with. Baptismal regeneration. So let's let's highlight sure. this for a moment. So I was listening to um, Catholic Answers, which I tend to listen to on occasion, and uh, they actually had Trent Horn on, who's a guy I actually really respect sure. a lot. Um, The show is called uh, Why Are You a Protestant? And a very interesting two hours. Um, Protestants were not the the greatest ones to have calling in, uh, but the topic of baptismal uh, regeneration came up. Walk us through that. What is baptismal regeneration? And also, if you could, kind of contrast the view between Lutherans and Church of Christ, if you could. Sure, sure. Well, um, I'm not an expert in Lutheran sacramental theology, so um, everything I say is going to kind of have to be taken with a grain of salt. I don't want to speak as an expert or even as someone who's studied um, when I'm not. So I have a very cursory understanding of Lutheran theology. I've studied Roman Catholic uh, sacramentology in more depth, so I'll start there. Um, So Roman Catholics believe in in uh, baptismal regeneration, and... um, what distinguishes them from um, the Lutheran perspective on baptismal regeneration is that um, Catholics believe in, in a position that's called ex opera operata. And that's a Latin phrase that just means um, out of the working of the work. And so when we, when we look at what that means in terms of practical theological payout is when you have a, um, a baptism being administered, it really doesn't matter on, on many levels um, and this has changed throughout church history, but in the right circumstances in today's world, you could have a Muslim applying a baptism to a dying atheist, and that baptism puts that atheist into a state of grace, because it's the actual act of baptizing uh, that brings about that state of grace. Now, Roman Catholic theologians would go to extreme lengths to qualify exactly what those circumstances need to be. So I'm I'm not trying to create a straw man, and I'm sure there will be many Catholics that will object to that. But I got that out of the word 
out of the mouth of a Catholic, you know, when I was actually considering becoming Catholic. Um, and the reason for that is because they want to affirm uh, in a very real way that it is God's work. Baptism is God's work. And so in, in a lot of ways, the persons who are, are the, uh, the people who are performing the action of baptizing are somewhat irrelevant. Now, in normal circumstances, they would say that it has to be an ordained priest within, you know, in communion with the Bishop of Rome, and those kinds of things would be in play. But in an extreme circumstance, a dying atheist could ask for baptism from a passing Muslim, and assuming the Muslim was willing to do it, that baptism would be valid. Um, and if combined with faith, that baptism would become effective. Now, Lutherans wow. um, hold, hold some similar things, except they would deny the, the ex opera operata part. So they, they want to say that it's not just the act of baptizing that brings about the, the result, but it's also it has to be combined explicitly with the faith of the person being baptized. Um, so baptism does affect the new state, but that person has to also um, act in faith and combine uh, that faith in order for the regeneration to kind of become a reality. So um, I'm honestly not 100% certain how, uh, how regeneration happens in the Lutheran schema, according to baptism, um, because especially if, you, you know, you were to ask a kind of a classical Lutheran, like a Chris Rosebro um, or a Jordan Cooper, um, they're going to say, well, a person who's regenerated um, is regenerated. They, if the Holy Spirit has saved you, then the Holy Spirit has saved you. They're, you know, there's, they're not saying um, you can lose your salvation. Um, but at the same time, they want to say that a, a baby who is baptized is regenerated in some way, but ultimately may not be saved. Um, and I took a course on Luther, um, and this was a course on Luther, not on Lutheranism, in seminary. And that was one of the recurring questions we had. Well, how do they reconcile this? Um, and, and I never really got a clean answer from um, the, the professor who wasn't a Lutheran but had studied Luther on a doctoral level. Um, now, the difference between that and sort of a Church of Christ or some of the Oneness Pentecostal branches that would believe in a form of baptism or regeneration is that um, that baptism now becomes, um, I want to say this in a charitable way, but it, it becomes a milestone that you have to achieve in order to be saved. So Roman Catholics, at least in today's Roman Catholicism, would say a person who has every intention of being baptized and every intention of becoming part of the church, all of those things are in place. They're die, they die on the road, in, you know, on the way to church, uh, and they haven't been able to be baptized. They have what's called baptism of conscience or baptism of the heart, where a person who genuinely desires baptism, if they're not able to bring that about with the actual sacrament, God honors their intention as though they had. Lutherans would say something kind of similar. They would say, well, baptism is a command. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a sacrament that God has commanded us to, to participate in. He commands us to baptize our children. But they would say it's not necessary for salvation in that it doesn't, uh, it doesn't stop God from saving you if you haven't done it. Now, the Church of Christ people that I've interacted with um, would say exactly the opposite. They would say that it is a, it's a milestone you have to achieve in order for God to save you. Um, so I've also had most Church of Christ people um, that I've talked to who've been very comfortable with, uh, with saying things that are amounting to us earning our own merit and being saved, um, that obedience to the law is, is going to accrue us merit in some way that is going to make it so God has to save us. They would count baptism as kind of the first part of that step, of that process. So the main distinction to remember um, is 
Church of Christ, baptism is absolutely necessary for salvation. If you are not baptized, it doesn't matter if you trust Christ. It doesn't matter if you um, are, are a part of the church. It doesn't matter how much good work you do. It doesn't matter how much faith you have. Um, it doesn't matter your contacts. It doesn't matter why you're not baptized. If you're not baptized, you're not, you're not saved. You will end up in hell. Lutherans, Roman Catholics, um, which it feels kind of strange to clump Lutherans and Roman Catholics together on this, but Lutherans, Roman Catholics, the Reformed, Arminians, pretty much everybody else in the Christian world is going to say, well, no, baptism is something's commanded. We're supposed to do it. Um, it has various effects on the person who's being baptized. You know, if you're Lutheran, there's some, some element of regeneration. If you're Reformed, there's some sort of element of, of covenant membership. Um, but none of those things... Um, Although normative, they're not necessary. So if, you, um, if you're in a church where they don't do baptism for some reason, there are, are weird churches out there that don't do water baptism, um, God's not going to say, well, you know, you trusted my son, and, and he bled and died on the cross for you, but you didn't take that dunk, so too bad. Um, so that's really the main difference between, like, Church of Christ or some, some types of one's Pentecostalism that are going to draw that hard line. All right, and that's why we have Tony Arsenal with us, folks. He's a, he's a brilliant mind. I've learned so much from him. Let's uh, let's go ahead and take our first break and uh, give uh, give Tony a chance to get his breath and get some water or something. And uh, we'll look at some further questions when we come back. Um, I wanted to ask him on the nature of uh, kind of the difference between sacraments in different uh, denominations covenant theology versus dispensational, look at the differing views of eschatology as well as, as the atonement. So if you have a question, please call us at 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907. We're going to be in the studio for the next hour taking your questions. Maybe you, you disagree with us. That's great. We'd love to have you join us, Roman Catholics, Lutherans, etc., cetera, uh, whoever, atheists, we want to hear from you. So we'll be back uh, in a few moments after this break. It's often claimed that evolution is simply change over time. And since change over time can be seen everywhere, then evolution is obviously true. But highly qualified creation scientists say there is much more to it than that. For evolution to have turned particles into people, simple change over time is not enough. A special kind of change is needed. That is, naturally occurring change that adds new genetic instructions. No one has seen this special kind of change happen. Darwin's finches, peppered moths and adapting bacteria are all examples of naturally occurring change. But not one of them shows the addition of new genetic instructions. Not one of them writes any brand new genetic code specifying how to make some new complex feature, such as feathers for lizards, for example. And since codes and programs cannot write themselves, there must have been a designer for all living things. To find out more from Creation Ministries International, visit our website, creation.com. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. One minute apologist. If you had one minute Apologia. to be able to unpack for the audience, we interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. I'm here with Dr. Norman Geisler. If you've been a Christian long enough, we've all experienced the Jehovah's Witness coming to our door. My question is, are Jehovah's Witnesses a cult? Well, a cult is defined as a group that claims to be Christian, but denies one or more essential Christian doctrines. And there are about 14 essential Christian doctrines. We have a book on it called uh, Conviction uh, Without Compromise. 
It has a chapter in each of these fundamental doctrines, like the deity of Christ. They deny that. The doctrine of hell. They deny that. They deny uh, the uh, bodily resurrection. Well, there are three right off the bat that they uh, don't believe. So how can you be a Christian when you deny fundamental Christian doctrine? Psalm 11.3 says, If the foundation be destroyed, what shall the righteous do? So you're going to call it a, a building if it doesn't have any foundations left to it, if it's crumbling because the foundations aren't there? Jehovah's Witnesses are not a Christian group. They're a Christian cult because they claim to be Christian but deny Christian doctrines, which makes them essentially a Christian cult. Here's a Renewing Your Mind Minute with Dr. R.C. Sproul. The church, ultimately, in which I am called to be a member, is what we call the invisible church, whose members include every person who has ever been a believer in Christ. Martin Luther is a member of my congregation. St. Augustine is a member of my church. And when we come and worship together as a community on Sunday morning, we're not just having fellowship with each other, but we have a mystical union with Christ, and Christ has the mystical union with all of his people. So by virtue of our communion with Christ, we also are in communion with all of the saints with all of the people of God. It transcends space. It transcends time. For today's special offer, visit renewingyourmind.org. All right, folks, we are back taking your calls for the next hour here in the studios and uh, got all kinds of different questions we want to, to cover. Uh, Tony, recently Creflo Dollar has been in the news and uh, he made a big hubbub a while back. Um, he was trying to get donors to uh, basically supply $65 million so he could get a top-of-the-line jet. And a lot of people were outraged and uh, really kind of let their voices be heard, and he, he ended up taking the uh, taking the link down. But I uh, found out last week he actually went and purchased that jet what are what are your thoughts on kind of the word of faith movement and um, what are some of the distortions we can look for as far as uh, veering from orthodoxy? Well, I would like to start first by saying he should be given uh, the most ironic name award uh, in Christianity. Uh, it would only only a person like Crapo Dollar could convince his church to buy him a $65 million jet and then convince them that that has to do with God's uh, excellence. Um, I think, I mean, I haven't studied the the word of faith movement in depth, so I, I would encourage people to, to try to tune in to something like Pirate Christian Radio with Chris Rosebro, who um, I don't always agree with him and, and I don't always agree with his approach, but he, um, he really day in and day out submits himself to the worst sermons in history um, in order to really sound the alarm against this kind of dangerous stuff. And, and it really is. And, and I think sometimes in, in North America, we get a little insulated um, and, and in kind of Northern, Northern Western countries like, um, you know, Europe and, and uh, the United States here, we get kind of insulated and we think that sort of, a minor problem in the church, but in reality, the fastest growing sectors of the church are inundated with this stuff. So the, you know, kind of the global South, Africa, South America, those things are really prominent. And um, 
unfortunately, the, the pastors who are trying to serve in those areas aren't trained properly uh, to be able to combat that stuff. And so they, they end up falling prey to some of it. Um, and I use the word prey intentionally because these guys are wolves. Um, and, and what happens, and I was kind of talking about it earlier when we were talking about God's will, is they're going to tell you, um, well, God wants you to be happy, healthy, and wise. He wants you to have a new car. He wants you to have lots of money. He wants you to, you know, he wants you to be popular. He wants you to get that promotion. He wants you to have the good parking spots, whatever it is. And when you're told that long enough, you believe it. And um, I think a really interesting study, and I'm surprised nobody's done it, is um, trying to find out what happens to the people in those congregations when someone gets cancer. Um, you know, do they face church discipline? Does Joel Olstein tell somebody, um, I'm sorry, you can't be a part of our church. You're obviously living in sin if you got sick. Um, but what it does is people hear these promises and they're told, um, they're told that God is like this. God is going to bless you if you, uh, if you sow a seed into this ministry. God's going God's to create reality as you speak it. And you're, you're given this image of God. And then when that image doesn't pan out, um, when you, you know, your, your daughter, you know, your, your kid daughter dies of cancer um, or when, you know, uh, you know, I've been reading on Facebook about this, this pastor who died, you know, his family gets in a car accident, he loses two children in a car accident. Um, you know, if you have a picture of God, who's going to, um, who's going to give you all these material blessings, if you just follow him and then he doesn't do it, um, chances are you're not going to walk away from that picture of God into, you know, a Bible-believing church that's preaching the gospel, chances are you're going to walk away from the concept of God altogether. And so when we, when we let people create this false image of God and present it to the world, really what we're doing is we're, we're teeing people up to become disenchanted atheists. We're teeing people up to become Bart Ehrman's and Dan Barker's. Um, because I would, I would walk away from that God too if I, you know, if he, if he didn't pan out. I would walk away from the Word of Faith God too the second something bad happened, because um, that God can exist the way they're telling me. Um, so as far as you know, what we need to do is we need to not be shy about calling it out. You know, Stephen Furtick, who uh, ministers down by you, kind of is um, he's sort of on the edge. He's sort of on the edge of some of this word faith stuff at times. Um, and because he's popular, because he's got a big church, and because most of the time what he says is not rank heresy, uh, people kind of leave him alone to do his own thing. Um, and we really need to, you know, we really need to speak out against this when we see it. At the same time, we need to remember that there's, you know, varying degrees of this heresy. Um, there's there. people who just want to say that God, you know, God likes to bless his children. And so we should, we should expect material blessings. Now there's the core, you know, there's a kernel of truth in that. God does love to bless his children. Um, and we should, we should anticipate that God, it, it, you know, as a normal course of, of operations will, will anticipate the needs of his children and will provide for them. But we need to recognize that all of the promises in scripture that are reflecting, you know, that God will, give you wealth if you serve him. Those kinds of promises are eschatological. So we shouldn't anticipate healing, ultimate healing in this world. We should look at the, pro, you know, the passages that promise healing and recognize that that healing takes place in the resurrection. That healing takes place when we're given glorified bodies. Um, does God and can God still heal occasionally in, in this world? I would say, yeah, I think we have to recognize that God has the prerogative to do that, and, and in some cases probably even does. Um, but what we should look to when we see those promises in the Bible is we should look to our ultimate hope, which is a renewed life in Christ um, and a renewed earth that we'll dwell, in, you know, dwell on with him forever.
Yeah, that's that's good, and I appreciate your willingness to uh, to speak out on that. You know, with with regards to Stephen Furtick, you know, his, when asked who his favorite preacher was, uh, he said it was T.D. Jakes. He says, you know, T.D. Jakes has has had more influence on him than anyone else. And uh, yeah, you know, just a statement like that, it's it's it it's uh, kind of shows you the discernment level, I guess. Well, and, and I, I love that you use the word discernment because I think we need to draw distinctions as far as why some people uh, fall into the errors they do. Stephen Furtick um, is a young guy. I don't know how old he is. He might be older than me, but probably not. Um, he's a young guy, and he's very immature, and he hasn't really studied in depth about some of these things. So um, if you were to ask him to explain um, you know, what, what's the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity – now, compare and contrast it to T, the faith statement on uh, T.D. Jake's church's website. I'm not convinced that he could give you a meaningful explanation of how those things are different. Um, I'm not he can, you know, convinced he could give you a meaningful explanation as to why it matters why those things are different. And so we shouldn't, we shouldn't look at him and say, well, he thinks T.D. Jake's is a good preacher. Um, you know, right. he, must, he must be a modalist or he must, he must be a heretic. Um, right, no, I, I don't right. think he's – I, I want to be – charitable in how I say this, I don't think he knows enough about theology to recognize that he just said his favorite preacher is a heretic. T.D. Jakes is an excellent communicator. He's a very compelling communicator. Um, he preaches compelling and um, moving sermons. Um, it's too bad that he preaches heresy, because if he yeah. didn't preach heresy, he would be a great preacher. Um, but he does. And like I said, I think that's the problem is that you you know you get Mark uh, Mark Driscoll or Stephen Furtick, both people who haven't really studied these things in depth as much as they should have, and they're they're not drawing distinctions. Um, yeah. And you see, yeah, I think, I think like Driscoll. I think with Driscoll, it's a little different. I think Driscoll knows quite a bit more than than Furtick, and I just think Driscoll right. would during that elephant room, he just refused to be direct and willing to confront it. Cause I think he, I think he could do a better job explaining things theologically probably than Furtick. I mean, what, what do you well, think? Yeah. Am I off on that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah. And, and I don't want to get side railed into a, a Mark Driscoll diatribe because I've, I've got strong feelings about the whole Mark Driscoll thing. But <laughs> I, I think that what that proves to you though, is that there are some people who really understand theology, um, but don't, don't, um, don't connect that to how they need to live and how they, you know, how they need to um, interact with other people. So I don't want to, I don't want to make uh, too many um, speculations about why Mark Driscoll didn't uh, call out TD Jakes. Um, it may have been, you know, nerves. There may have been, you know, kind of ecumenical pressures um, from uh, other people who were organizing the show and were, you know, doing that kind of thing. Um, there may have even been some kind of misguided hope that um, extending the right hand of fellowship uh, would somehow draw, you know, TD Jakes into, into Christian faith. And, and, and I'll admit it at first, it seemed like that may have been the case. It doesn't look like that's played out. Um, and I think that that's an unwise way to go about it. You don't, you don't shake hands with a heretic and tell him a heretic and hope that it becomes true. Uh, or tell him he's not a heretic and hope that it becomes true, which I, I think is probably what happened. Um, but you know, Mark Driscoll was happy, was was gleeful to call people out and point out people's errors um, in most circumstances. But then when it really counted and when most of the Christian world, you know, would have stood on their feet and applauded him for doing you know, for doing exactly that in that context, um, you know, he didn't do it. So I don't know why yeah. he didn't do it. 
um, it was really, really uncharacteristic for him not to do it. Um, and and I think in some part, that's why they were, you know, they put him up there with him as I think they, they wanted someone who would have the guts to say it if, if that's what it came down to. Um, and he, he just whiffed at the plate. I don't, I don't know how to explain it. Um, and, and I think in some ways, you know, I'll indulge my Mark Driscoll, um, my Mark Driscoll commentary tendencies here is a little bit. In some ways, when we look at the, the people that Driscoll seems to have been aligning himself with after he's departed from Mars Hill and, and had all this controversy, um, he's aligning himself with Word of Faith people. He's aligning himself with T.D. Jakes and Stephen Furtick. And so the, the um, you know, the um, partnerships and friendships that he's made um, after the fact are really troubling. Um, it, it really makes mm. you wonder how much of that theology was something he really believed to the core of his being um, and how much of it was just kind of riding the new Calvinist kind of trend. Um, I saw someone yeah. the other day who said something really insightful that um, there are a lot of new, you know, kind of neo young reform, restless, neo Calvinist guys. Um, neo Calvinism is a popular movement right now. And so there's some people who are a part of it because it's what's popular because it's what's trendy. And there are some people who are a part of it who are just really a part of it because it's what they believe. Um, it's what they found the scriptures to be teaching. And it's really hard at times to see who's who in that. And we don't always have a way to know. And I think Driscoll's a, a potentially a, a good case of that where, um, you know, he was a very outspoken uh, proponent of, of kind of this, um, minimalistic Calvinism. I don't, I don't want to really call it full-blown Calvinism because it's missing a lot of elements, but kind of a minimalistic Calvinism. Um, and now that that kind of chewed him up and spit him out in a way, um, it seems like he's willing to just kind of disregard a lot of those core things he actually preached against um, when he was in a pulpit. So I just think we have to be careful and, and look at beyond just what someone is saying, we have to look at why they're saying it. You know, Mark Driscoll is saying it for a reason, and we don't always know what it is. Stephen Furtick, I think, saying some of the things he's saying, he believes them, but he believes them because he's immature. He believes them because yeah. he hasn't studied. Um, he hasn't been trained in the right way. And I didn't know this, but he went to Southern Baptist seminaries. Um, he yeah, he is beyond me. I don't understand it. But, um, I don't either. you know, he, he went to seminary. He's got degrees. He studied the stuff. Um, and presumably he had teachers who've been tested and approved by the church, but, um, it just seems like he's really, uh, taken to a form of theology that's very shallow and very, um, immature. You know, he's still, he's still trying to drink milk, um, when he should be the one that's not only chewing meat, but he should be, you know, cutting up the meat and serving it to his congregation. And he's still, you know, looking for a bottle theologically. Yeah, while we're on this topic, but before we move on to the next subject real quick, um, I was I was listening to a discussion today between Jonathan Lehman, uh, who's a guy with uh, with Nine Marks. You're you're familiar with Nine Marks, right? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So he's written several books. His his thing is is the church. He is awesome um, on sure. that and a bunch of other topics. But uh, the discussion was with another Southern Baptist uh, on church multi sites. Uh, whether or not sure. they were biblical, whether or not it was a good idea to have these, because uh, Elevation, for example, has like five or six multi-sites, and they keep popping up. What is what is uh, what is your view on that, as far as good sound ecclesiology, as far as the, sure. the mega church with the campus uh, satellites? 
Sure. Well, I, I have to lay my bias on the table because I don't want to. I don't want to pretend that I don't have a history and that there aren't things in my past that are going to affect my answer. Um, I came to faith in a megachurch. I came to faith in a, a church in Minneapolis that, at the time, was probably at about ten thousand people on a busy Sunday, um, with like eleven or twelve different services spanning across Saturday and Sunday, two different sites, um, and and I, you know, I got I got beat up at that church. Um, I I got uh, beat up spiritually. Um, I, I contributed to that. You know, I had my own immaturities that caused conflict. But um, the what I noticed is the pastoral care at that church uh, was really lacking. And here's a concrete example. Um, I was a I was a freshman in college. And I was going through some, through some really difficult decisions. Some of them were um, problems I was causing because of disobedience. Some of them were just genuinely difficult uh, life decisions. And I got a card in the mail from the senior pastor. And it, you know, it was a beautiful card and it had this long explanation about how he was praying this morning and my name came to mind and he just wanted to tell me it was also a charismatic church at the time. Um, he just wanted to tell me that, um, you know, God had a plan and that God was going to do great things in the near future. And so I was really encouraged. Um, about two years later, I uh, was no longer even attending the church. Um, I got a card in the mail from the senior pastor and it was the exact same thing. And I know it was the exact same thing because I, I had the original postcard that he sent me and it was hanging on my wall because it meant that much to me. I took it down and I compared it. It was the exact same thing. The only difference was that on the second one, he had written her instead of him. So he wasn't even looking at the names. Um, he was just, he had a, um, a predefined thing he wrote and he went through the membership list, you know, filled in the blank and sent it out. Um, and to me, that's just an example of what can happen at those. Um, he wasn't a bad guy. He had pretty good theology. Um, you know, he preached well. He, he really cared and took his responsibilities as a pastor seriously. Um, but because of the size of the church, he was forced into these kinds of patterns that really, I think, are, are contradictory to how God calls pastors to be. You know, a shepherd who has a flock that's so big he can't keep track of the sheep is not a good shepherd. He's going to lose the sheep. Right. He probably should – he probably should – you know, take on a flock that's smaller that he can actually care for. Um, and so, you know, you see something like a like an elevation or even in some ways the village down in, in Texas with Matt Chandler. And I think Matt Chandler is a rock star. Um, in some ways, even like Piper in um, when he was at Bethlehem in Minneapolis, um, you don't ever really get to interact with your pastor in those situations. Um, I was from Minneapolis. The reason I didn't go to Piper's church is because I wanted to interact with my pastor. And I knew that if I was at Bethlehem, I wasn't going to be able to call my pastor on a Saturday night and say, I really need to talk. Um, I wouldn't wow. have even been allowed to get his phone number. So um, I think in reality, even though I think the mega church movement, the multi-church uh, movement, I think it had its time and God had its, his use for it. Um, I don't think that it's really the model that we're given in, in scripture for how the shepherds are supposed to shepherd their flock. Um, and so I, I would resist the idea of a um, of a multi-site model. And I think, you know, to kind of bring up Matt Chandler, and this will probably lead us to some other discussions, but, um, you know, his model, as, when he started, he always, every site that they launched, the intention was for it to become an autonomous individual church. Um, and I think their first campus that they um, launched as a multi-site just became an autonomous church or is in the process of becoming an autonomous body um, fully separate from the village, um, which I think is awesome. And I, I don't know that that's, uh, it seems almost like a kind of backwards church planting, but um, you know, that's his heart is not to be over this large, um, this large congregation, 
um, is to be replicating, you know, building up building up shepherds and then sending them out to shepherd flocks that they can manage, I think is really ideal. Um, and, you know, I would, I guess I would probably prefer that you have a church that you can manage and as soon as you can't manage it, then you send out uh, a shepherd to start a new, you know, to, to split off and start a new congregation. Um, but, you know, what they're doing at the village seems to be um, effective right now. And it seems like they've built a process where, um, you know, individuals have pastors that are kind of their pastor, um, you know, and Matt is kind of just in charge of teaching and kind of strategic, um, you know, overall vision for where the church is going and overall kind of leadership of the church. Um, but I, I would say multi, you know, multi-state churches have all sorts of problems. Um, you know, I don't want, I, my pastor should, I shouldn't, the only time I see a pat, my pastor shouldn't be on a screen. Um, if I, you know, if I can say I have the same interaction with your pastor as you do, because I podcast, you know, there's a problem there. Um, right. you know, I listen I listened to the church that I went to when I was in Minneapolis. I still podcast a sermon every single Sunday. I haven't missed a single Sunday since I moved five years ago. Um, wow. And I I love that pastor. You know, I, he, he's the pastor that I was under when I came to faith. He was my youth pastor. He was my pastor pastor when I was in college. Um, he's, he's a dear friend. He's not my pastor anymore, though. As much as I love him, um, he's not my pastor. He's a pastor in Minneapolis that I listen to this podcast. Um you know, I probably have a little bit more access to him than the average person who might be listening to his podcast. I can call his cell phone. I can, you know, email him. I can just show up at his house when I'm visiting. Um, but it ultimately, my pastor is the person who's accountable for me and who I'm accountable to. Um, and a person like um, Matt Chandler, to, to pick on someone that I respect and love and think is doing a great job, Matt Chandler uh, cannot be accountable for his congregation in the same way that I think he should be. Um, I think right. that a pastor should have, you know, this is the foundation of church membership, right? A pastor has a set number of people that he is accountable for their spiritual care, and that defined set number of people are accountable to that pastor or to that, you know, group of pastors. Um, and there shouldn't be a lot of question marks as to who's accountable to who and who's accountable for who. Um, and then you get a big church like the Village or Elevation or um, – you know, even like MacArthur's church or Piper's church formerly, you don't really have that. So I wonder if that's, you know, it, you, you know, you talk about Devers got the nine marks of the church, but I prefer what the reformers had with the three marks of the church. You know, you've got proper sacraments are being administered, the gospel being rightly preached and church discipline is being executed properly. Um, I'm not sure you can really execute church discipline properly at that size. And I think right now, Matt Chandler would probably be the first person to tell you, no, you can't. You can't exercise church discipline because you turn, you have to turn it into a, a bureaucratic process because there's so many right. people that you have to get through the process. They stop being people and start being um, cases that you have to work through, um, which, you know, I, I pray that God is not going to um, chastise Matt and the village too harshly. They've, they've been repentant in this last issue they've had. Um, they've been repentant. I, I think that, in my mind, that's sufficient, but, you know, God may choose to do some chastisement and some discipline there. Um, but I think that the, the elders at the village church would probably agree with me at this point and say, yep, we let it become a process. Now they're going to try to work it out and figure out how do they, how do they reverse that problem and still maintain their size? We may find out that all of the, all of the village church sites need to become autonomous and need to have uh, individual churches. That may be what happens. Um, I think that would probably be a good thing. But 
ultimately there has to be that level of accountability that I just can't, I just don't think can be there at the, the really big mega church or multi-state church model. That's good. Good stuff. Uh, for those interested, um, Southeastern will be hosting the, you know, in March conference, I believe in, uh, six September or October, I believe, but, uh, they're going to be actually focusing this year on church discipline. So, we went last year and uh, talked about the importance of being in a local church, and uh, let's talk about that. Uh, well, I, I guess you, you kind of hit on that. Is there, if you were to, because we, we live kind of in an age in America with evangelicals that uh, church leader, uh, being part of a church membership is something that is an option, right? I don't know if you wanted to add any more to what you'd said. If you think that's sufficient, we can move on, but... Is there anything you would say to a Christian out there who says, you know, hey, I'm listening to, to Matt Chandler or whatever on podcasts um, uh, or I'm visiting different churches. I don't have to be part of a, a local church. Jesus, you know, you know, didn't say anything about that. W- would you add anything to that or – yeah, I mean, I was, I mean, for all the reasons I said before, I, I would, I would say they're just wrong. Um, right. You know, it, the Bible is really clear that um, pastors are accountable for the people under their charge, and um, from a, a, a congregation member's perspective, it's not fair to my pastor to even call them my pastor unless there's some sort of formal acknowledgement that that's the case. Um, you know, so if I go to a church. Um, if all I'm doing is coming and listening to a sermon and then, you know, peace outing out the back of the you know sanctuary as soon as he's done that. And then I call that person, my pastor, he may not even know who I am. Um, right. You know, it's not fair to call him my pastor and treat him like he's accountable for my spiritual development. If I, I don't even have the courtesy to tell him that I'm that. And so in reality, what, what usually happens with people who say like, well, I just go to a bunch of different churches is there's some sort of loose association and there's some sort of loose acknowledgement. And the, really the main difference is that membership is just written down. It's on paper and there's clear, you know, there's clear expectations and requirements. Um, if I'm, you know, at a particular church and there's requirements for members at that church, um, there's a document somewhere or, or, a you know, a line on a spreadsheet somewhere that says this person is part of this body, this mm-hmm. pastor is accountable for their spiritual care and for disciplining them. And that person is obligated to obey these uh, commitments that they made when they became part of the church. Um, when we get rid of that formal structure, um, what we've done is we've just basically made this, this kind of borderless cloud, um, which just, even though the Bible doesn't have explicit instructions for church membership or use that language, um, the relationship between an elder and his his people is much uh, much more defined in the scripture than that. And in, in New Testament times, you know, it was primarily geographic. It was, there was a, a bishop or an overseer or an elder, whatever word you want to use. They all, all come from the same Greek term. Um, and that person was responsible for the Christians who were living in an area near them. And that's why, you know, Paul can write to the church in Ephesus. He can write that and address it to a particular leader. Uh, the book of Colossians is written uh, and told to be delivered to Philemon or Philemon, however you pronounce it, right? Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, there was a person identified in that church who not only the letter was given to, but was responsible for sharing that letter and making sure his people understood it and making sure the people that he was responsible for were obeying the commands the apostle was giving. Right there is your church membership. Um, you know, was there a point when um, Philemon had a, you know, a piece of paper that he wrote everybody's name on? Probably not. 
maybe we don't know. Um, but I think that that relationship is so much more clearly defined. And when you just look at how it functioned in scripture, that this kind of amorphous, I can belong to multiple different local congregations. Well, what happens then if there's a church discipline issue, which pastor, you know, if I go to, if I go to, um, you know, Trinity OPC on, you know, on Sunday mornings and I go to, um, incarnation PCA on Sunday evenings, you know, if I, um, you know, if I, uh, steal something, which of those pastors is responsible for um, disciplining me? Which of the congregations yeah. am I am I going to be held accountable in? Which of the Lord's table am I going to be barred from? Should I be barred for both of them? Um, should I even be taking communion at both of them in the first place? All of those questions that are, are eliminated if we have a good theology of church membership, um, they fall into place as problems in kind of the, the standard evangelical ecclesiology that we have right now. All right, good stuff. Uh, we should we should do a show on ecclesiology. I've been wanting to do that. That's uh, my pastor loves that topic. He's he's really good at that. So look yeah, for that absolutely. in the future, folks. We'll we'll do that because it's important. All right, I want to hit a couple more uh, questions on here, uh, Tony. You brought up about the the new Calvinists. Talk to us uh, basically two things. Define kind of the new Calvinists from the classic uh, Reformed theology. And maybe uh, that'll be a little segue to talk a little bit about the difference between dispensationalism, covenant theology. And I know there's different flavors of of dispensationalism, sure. but uh, yeah, talk to us a little bit about the, the differences there. Sure. So if we're talking historically about the reform, you know, kind of the capital R reformed, um, what we're generally talking about is a body of uh, Christians who came out of the Reformation you know, you got kind of the two main trajectories in the Reformation is, is the Lutherans and then those following after Calvin. And the Reformed are a branch that followed after Calvin who um, are defined by certain confessions that came into being primarily kind of in the 17th century. So you've got the Westminster Confession of Faith. You have the Three Forms of Unity, which was kind of the continental. Um, on the On the European continent, you had kind of the um, the groups that were writing confessional statements and catechisms there. Um, a little bit later, you added um, what, what was called Particular Baptists. You added in the London Baptist Confession of Faith, which is kind of just a modified, edited version of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, although there's even going to be argument, you know, are, can Baptists really be reformed? Um, and I don't want to get into all that, partially because I'm married to a Baptist, so I don't want to cause any family drama, but when we talk about the Reformed, there's kind of, there's kind of three big points. Um, they're going to be people who are soteriologically Calvinistic. So they're going to affirm, um, they're going to affirm the Calvinist doctrine of, of redemption, that, um, you know, God preordains who will be saved and who will be lost. He brings about the salvation of those he uh, chooses uh, to save. He does so entirely of, of grace. Um, he's utterly sovereign. Nothing happens apart from his will. Those kind of classic things we think about when we talk about Calvinism. So if you don't hold those doctrines, you can't be reformed. Um, if uh, the next kind of big part would be confessional. So typically people who are reformed, um, 
ascribed to a confession. Now, even that is kind of slippery because does that mean that I'm part of an ecclesiastical body that I have to ascribe to that? Or does that just mean that I affirm what the confessions have to say and think that confessions are a valid enterprise? Um, I would say it's probably the latter. So I, for one, affirm the vast majority of what the Westminster Confession says. And I think that the idea of having a confession is a good thing. Um, I think when okay, we don't have so confessions, we... We slip into a lot of the same kinds of problems we were talking about with ecclesiology earlier. Yeah, very good, very good. Uh, so, would you consider like the, the like myself, Reformed Baptist, uh, hold of the 1689? Would you say that's kind of part of that that system there is holding? When you say being confessional, are you talking about just like the the Westminster standards, or would you put in like the sure. the London Baptist as well? Well, historically, the London Baptist Confession has not really been considered part of the Reformed confessional body. Um, okay. But in today's world, um, it, it basically is. So if you were to talk about um, someone being um, Reformed and you were to talk about a Reformed Baptist who holds the 1689 Confession, um, that would, would generally be considered Reformed. And I don't, like I said, I don't, I'm not necessarily interested in drawing fine distinctions to that level. Um, someone right. who affirms a one of the classic confessions coming out of the Calvinist stream of thought would be considered reformed. Um, so the London Baptist confession would, would fall into that. Um, so some people Calvinist, would say you can't, you can't be reformed. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, so, so the reformed Baptist, a lot of them would also hold the, to like the canons of Dort and that, and that as well. Right. 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 Okay. And so, um, so, so you have this kind of body of, of confessional thought. You've got the Westminster. You've got, like, the Scottish Confession. Some people would even say, like, the 39 Articles of the Anglican Church, um, which the Westminster Confession actually is kind of a further elaboration on. The London Baptist Confession, the you know, the three forms of unity on the continent, um, the Belgic Confession, those kinds of things. That body of theology all kind of says the same thing. So if you hold to any one of those confessions, um, and when I say hold to, I mean affirm those that those confessions are basically right and agree that having confessions for the church is a good thing. Because, for example, I'm not part of a church that affirms that requires uh, requires members to affirm a particular confession. Um, so if being a part of that body is required to be confessional, then I'm not confessional. A lot of Christians who are Reformed aren't confessional if you if you take that approach. Um, and then kind of the last big point, and this is where I think we'll get into the discussion of dispensationalism, is I would say that covenantal theology is also essential to what it means to be Reformed. So um, someone like MacArthur, for example, who doesn't hold to you know covenantal theology, um, he, I, I would say he's not really reformed in the classic sense. He's kind of, right. you know, we get into this, this new Calvinism, the young reform, restless Calvinism, which is much more about kind of core Calvinist soteriology than it is necessarily. Of grace. Right, exactly. Yeah. You, you might want to call them tulip, tulip Calvinists or something like that. They affirm the yeah. basics of Calvinist soteriology, uh, but things that are pretty, you know, a little bit more particular, like the regulative principle of worship, you're not going to necessarily see that in in most uh, young reform restless congregations. Um, and if you do, it tends to be kind of this loose version of it. Um, you know, something like um, a real robust understanding of church discipline and church membership. Um, you're not necessarily going to find that in a lot of the kind of new Calvinist Acts 29 style churches. Now, there are a lot of great Acts 29 churches that have excellent 
you know, excellent church discipline structures and properly are doing that. But as a defining feature of what it means to be Calvinist, most of them wouldn't say a particular kind of church discipline is part of that. Where classically reformed confessions, um, they all outline and they include discipline as part of that. So Westminster tradition has, you know, the, the Presbyterian Book of Order that everyone who's part of a particular presbytery is obligated to follow. There's a prescription for how you do church discipline. There's a prescription for how do you confront a, a you know, a congregation member who seems to be falling into particular sins. There's there's regulations for how you do that. That kind of defined activity is not a hallmark of the Reformed, you know, the young, restless Reformed kind of new Calvinism. So, and I, I think a final part um, about it with the covenantal piece is the soteriology of uh, Reformed theology really doesn't function correctly if you don't hold to a, a you know covenantal theology. So you talk about the primary differences between um, dispensational theology and covenant theology. Dispensational theology wants to affirm that there are um, different different plans of salvation for different people at different times. Um, now it's a bit of a straw man argument to say that they affirm that certain dispensations are dispensations of works exclusively. Um, that's kind of the right. classic approach take against it. But um, they do want to say that, you know, old Testament Israel was saved by, you know, some of them like MacArthur will say was saved by faith, but their way that they're saved by faith is substantially different than the way Christians are saved by faith. Um, so that's where I think it, you run into problems is that a lot of times they'll slide into a kind of a sort of a, a, a form of the Judaizing heresy, right? You have people who are Jewish who are saved by a way other than Christian faith, which is a real problem. So I think when you get to someone like MacArthur, who um, many people would just, you know, gasp at the fact that I'm saying he's not reformed. Um, you really have kind of this other understanding that Israel is a separate, a separate plan that God had. And then all of a sudden, you know, when Israel rejects Christ in the first century, God creates sort of this backup plan. And that backup plan is the church. Um, and then, you know, that's why the church is raptured because they need to be pulled out of the situation. So God's original plan with Israel can kind of kick back into gear. So that's why uh, the church is raptured because it goes back to being the dispensation of, of Israel in the end times. Right. Yeah. So that's, that would be some of the, some of the big differences there. Um, that's good. That's good. I'm glad we're able to kind of look at that. Um, One other thing I, I just want to comment on is the, the reformed hermeneutic, I think is not necessarily a defining feature of what it means to be reformed, but I think the reformed have a very specific kind of hermeneutic generally. And um, one of the main things you'll see is the Reformed want to read everything in the Bible as though it is intended to speak about Christ. Now, sometimes it speaks about Christ directly. Sometimes it speaks about Christ typologically. Sometimes it speaks about Christ in sort of a getting us to the, you know, getting us to Christ. Um, so sometimes the you know, history, sometimes it's just history. So, you know, the book of Ruth, although there are typological elements, the main point of the book of Ruth, the reason it's in the canon is to show us how we got from the judges to David. And the point of doing that is to show us that 
the seed, the promise of the seed in the Old Testament in Genesis 3.15, that that is being fulfilled and brought to fruition through the line uh, of David, you know, through Ruth and, and Naomi, through backwards that way. I suppose not through Naomi, but um, where the dispensational hermeneutic doesn't always want to do that. They tend to read Old Testament prophecy particularly as though it's about the geopolitical nation of Israel, where a, a reform person is going to look at that and say, no, the fulfillment of these prophecies that um, you know were promises to geopolitical Israel, they may have had some sort of limited fulfillment to geopolitical Israel, but the ultimate fulfillment of that is found in Christ. Um, and that's you know kind of to some of the dispensationalist embarrassment, I think, um, you know, you look at Acts 15, that's how the early church, that's how the apostles interpreted some of those prophecies. They look at a prophecy that is about um, God establishing Israel in the land, and they say God has fulfilled this promise in our midst when they're talking about the Gentiles being brought in. Um, so that hermeneutic of trying to look at everything as though it's about Christ, the Christocentric hermeneutic, um, is really key to what it means to be reformed. And I'd say even even more than the um, the difference between uh, you know, different plans of salvation for different dispensations and um, kind of the covenantal model of salvation. That hermeneutic really drives our understanding of all of what Scripture is about in a really fundamental way. So even though you can probably be confessional and understand Reformed theology and not be aware of that, um, aware of that hermeneutic, it really permeates everything about Reformed theology in a way that you, you can't really escape it. And so that's why someone like John MacArthur comes to such different conclusions about the book of Revelation or about um, Daniel, you know, and, and the 70 weeks. He comes to such a different conclusion than, you know, the, the bulk of Reformed people. It's because his hermeneutic is based on something so different. Right, right. Yeah, that's that's good. Uh, let's see, we got about 20 minutes. Uh, again, folks, the phone lines are open, 760-542-3907. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, Tony, one of the things that I wanted to contrast was, uh, and we're just, there's no rhyme or reason to this to this show, folks, so we're just kind of jumping all over the place, um, which really speaks volumes of Tony's knowledge to be able to go from one topic to the next. Um, I wanted to look at the, the atonement. Uh, looking at the, the Reformed view of uh, sometimes called limited atonement or particular redemption versus kind of the classical Arminian view. What are what are some of the differences there that uh, I think people maybe can get a little bogged down or confused? What, what are the differences between these two systems? Sure. So when we're talking about the atonement, we really only um, we really only have a few possible options. Um, we can talk about the uh, intention of the atonement, and we can talk about the effect of the atonement. Now, sometimes you'll hear people say um, the sufficiency versus the efficiency. I'm not convinced those are terribly helpful. So we'll talk about the intent of the atonement, and we'll talk about the uh, about the effect or the extent of the atonement. So when we're talking about intent, we can either say that the intent of the atonement is universal or it's limited. Um, you know, Again, if someone has an idea for a third possibility, then I'm open to hearing it. But at least where I'm sitting, it either covers all people or it only covers some people. Um, I don't know of a logical middle ground between that. So uh, classical Arminian thought would say that the intent of the atonement is universal. God intends to save all people. He desires to save all people, and therefore the atonement is intended for all people. 
and that's all people, every single individual person. The classic reform position, uh, and this is where you get the phrase limited atonement, is that the intent of the atonement is limited. So God intends to save certain people, therefore he only intends for the atonement to be applied or available to certain people. So we have those two options, we'll set them aside a little bit. On the other side, we have the uh, extent or the effect of the atonement. And now we can talk about the atonement being effective for everyone it was intended for, or only effective for some people that it was intended for. So on the classical Arminian view, you have that the, uh, the atonement is only effective on some of the people that it was intended for. So it was intended for all people, but it only is effective for some people. Um, with the Calvinists, you have the exact flip side of that. It was the extent of the atonement is, is unlimited. So the, the people who God intended to save are 100% of the time saved. The effect can, of the atonement is 100%. Can, can I ask you a question on that? Uh, sure. So would we say then that, that Arminians hold to a penal substitutionary view of atonement, uh, believe that the sin is taken away until um, they put their faith in, or I don't know how. Sure. You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. It so, like um, uh, the cross alone doesn't take away the sin. They have to put their faith or whatever uh, in, in. So is that penal substitution still? Well, so here's where it becomes tricky is um, I think one of the pitfalls that we have as, you know, reform guys is we tend to see things in black and white. And we tend to think um, people uh, hold views that are self-consistent and they know what they're saying and they know what they're doing. Um, and people really just aren't. Um, if you investigate right. someone's theology in depth, you're going to find inconsistencies, even in reform guys. Um, um, oh, yeah. So what, what I think you see is you have Arminians believe penal substitution, but they don't recognize that it's inconsistent to hold that alongside with their understanding okay. of the intent and extent. So okay. you're right. If, if God actually saved me by Jesus dying on the cross, if my sins were actually punished for, um, punished by in Christ, then, uh, then that's the only way penal substitution can happen. If it's an actual concrete, real substitution, Christ is my substitute, then he's my substitute, full stop. What the Arminians want to try to say is um, Christ is my substitute insofar as I allow him to be. But the problem with that is that that makes it so he wasn't actually your substitute. So what we have to look at is in Calvinist theology, God actually saves people. Um, every right. single person that God intends to save is saved. Now, it's not exactly true uh, and it actually can be really problematic to try to say that God saved us in time at the cross because our sin, we're still in our sins until we are justified and, you know, after being united with Christ by faith. So there's ways to get into that, to explain that, that I don't, I don't think we need to get to, but it's, it's not the case that most Calvinists would say I was saved before birth. I was, I was born into a state of justification. There are some within our tradition historically and, and even now that would say, you know, justification happened on the cross. I was born in a state of justification. I've never been under the wrath of God. Um, I think they're wrong. I think that there's something real that happens when we embrace Christ by faith and are unified with him. And then he, from that flows justification and sanctification and all the other benefits that being united to Christ carries. Um, 
Arminians want to say that what Christ did on the cross makes salvation possible. And so it kind of opens the door to salvation. So you look at the analogies that they're going to use, you know, God opens the jail cell door and you just have to walk out of it. Or God throws you the lifesaver and all you got to do is hang on. Or God puts the pill in your mouth and all you got to do is swallow the medicine. Um, so they want to at one time act as though the, the, the event on the cross is concrete and it actually brings about the salvation of the people who bring, you know, appropriate Christ. But in reality, it's just not a consistent position. Um, and it, it, you know, if you read um, Why I'm Not an Arminian, I don't know the titles off the top of my head, but I think it was published by Baker. Um, they they go into that in depth. And, and kind of the classic example is John Owen's, um, I think it's John Owen, kind of his trilemma where, you know, either either the sins of all people are paid for and everyone's saved, the sins of no people are paid for and no one's saved, and Christians won't, don't, you know, Orthodox Christians don't want to affirm either of those, um, or some of the sins of some of the people, or all of the sins of some of the people are saved, are, are paid for, and, and those particular people are saved. Now, if we want to talk about the biblical evidence for this, the book, best book that I've ever read on this is called From Heaven He Came and Saw Her. It's a collection of essays, essays by some of the best uh, best reform minds that are out there. You know, the people come to mind. Um, Carl Truman wrote in there, um, Paul Helm. Oh. All sorts of really stellar scholars. That's a big um, the introduction one too, right? To the book, it's big. It's like 800 pages. Um, the nice. introduction to the book itself is worth the cost of the book. Um, and even just to have it as a reference for your shelf is very helpful. Um, I got a, a digital copy because I reviewed it, and I wish I had an electronic copy, but I can't justify spending money for something I already have access to. Um, <laughs> Although I may find a way to justify it in the near future. Um, and if someone wanted to send me a copy of it, I certainly wouldn't send it back. But um, if if we don't hold to that, what we do is we create a God who doesn't actually bring about what he intends to bring about. He um, he throws out salvation as a possibility, and he really hopes that people figure it out. Now, I know that's a bit of a caricature, and I'm not trying to be uncharitable, but that's I think that's what it boils down to is, um, you know, Jesus dies on the cross. Um, I saw uh, I saw a, a Facebook post the other day, and and the post was something along the lines of, "I'm so amazed that God that Jesus died on the cross, hoping that someday I would choose Him." Well, that's that's a pretty uh, pretty scary kind of idea that Jesus could have died for nothing. Nobody may have followed Him, um, and God wasn't going to bring about anyone following Him. He was just going to throw salvation out there. Um, and, you know, he may have known people were going to choose Christ, but he certainly wasn't in control of the fact that people choose Christ. Um, so those are really the two options is we have an atonement that is limited in intent and unlimited in effect, or we have a, an atonement that is unlimited in intent, but limited in effect. Um, Calvinists believe the former, Arminians roughly believe the latter. Um, now, you know, if you bring this up with a, a dis in a discussion with an Arminian, you may get some pushback because they're, you know, they're, like I said, they're wanting to affirm that Jesus couldn't have died in vain. They're wanting to affirm that the cross actually saves us. Um, in terms of the biblical evidence, like I mentioned earlier, what we see again and again and again is that God, uh, God elects a people who are the bride of Christ. Um, and then the, the son redeems those people and then presents them to his father, spotless and redeemed. And then the father grants those people back to the Son as his reward. Um, that's the warp and woof of, of Christian theology, Christian soteriology. Um, you know, if you read the book of 
Hebrews. It's constantly about a, uh, a high priest who's making atonement for his people. It's hard to make atonement for a, a sort of a nameless, faithless, potentially full, potentially empty, you know, undefined group of people, which is kind of the corporate election model is that God agreed to save everybody who puts themselves in a certain category, but he doesn't determine that anyone will put themselves in that category. All right. Good stuff. Let's see. We've got, uh, we've got uh, about eight minutes left here, Tony. Um, do this. Let's, uh, can you explain the difference uh, between justification and sanctification, especially kind of dealing with the Reformed view of sanctification? Can you, can you sure. talk about that? Sure. So I think it's a little bit helpful to contrast it with a Lutheran view. Um, so... Um, what the Lutheran view holds is that justification is kind of the fountainhead of all of the other benefits of salvation. Um, so prior to justification, you know, you have election, if, you know, election slash effectual call, then you have regeneration, and then um, justification uh, in Lutheranism, and then union with Christ in, in the Reformed. So Lutherans want to say we are made legally right with God, and then we become unified with Christ and sanctification flows out of justification as a, as a, like a logical consequence of justification where the reformed want to go is they want to say, um, we are unified, unified with Christ. We're in union with Christ. And then out of union with Christ flows multiple benefits. So justification is one of them. When we embrace Christ by faith, he takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. And that's justification. Our legal status is changed as God views us as his own son, um, and Christ bears our sin. So there's justification. Parallel to that and alongside it, as we embrace Christ by faith, there's also a definitive break with sin. There's a definitive destruction of the power that sin has over us. So um, at the point of union with Christ, justification happens, and also sanctification begins. Now, that definitive break with sin, that definitive defeat of the power of sin, is a point in time. So we can say at, at one point in time, we became sanctified. Now, at the same time, we can say that sanctification is a process, because even though sin no longer has definitive power over us, we still have to war against it. So the process of sanctification starts from that point in time and moves forward as we um, as we obey the law, as we learn what it means to be godly, and as we strive to do that, the Holy Spirit gives us grace and transforms us and makes us more like Jesus. As we sit under the preaching of God's word, the Holy Spirit, you know, imposes that word upon us and demands that we respond to it. And as we respond in faith, um, he transforms us to be more like the one we're in union with. The sacraments, baptism, uh, communion, as we participate in those ways that God has given us to show us his love in a tangible, physical, in front of our face way, um, and to bring us into covenant union with his son in a deeper way, he transforms us and makes us more like his son. And that's really what sanctification is, is it's the, it's the way that the Holy Spirit makes us look more like Jesus. So, well, at one point we are considered to be God's righteous, holy son in light of the grace that Christ has given us. He's given us his relationship with the Father, Sanctification is the process in which we kind of grow into and we kind of become the one, become more and more like the one that we're unified with. Now, 
the Lutheran position would say things like sanctification is just us getting used to our justification. So in some some of the formulations in, in Lutheran theology, sanctification is it's not really a change in the person. There's no real fundamental change over time in the person. It's just us becoming more and more um, in alignment with what we already are. Now, I don't want to say that that's entirely wrong because we are justified. We are made uh, positionally righteous, um, def- definitionally righteous in a moment in time. Um, we never have to fear our legal status being switched back. You know, that's where the Roman Catholic view goes, that your legal status. Um, it's not necessarily true to say that on the Roman Catholic view, there's not a, a change in status when you be, enter a state of grace. The primary difference, at least one of the primary differences, is that you can flip back to being not in a state of grace. Um, but the Reformed want to affirm that there is a genuine change in our person as we grow in sanctification. It's not just us um, living in light of what we already are. It's not just us becoming used to our justification or working out our justification um, in such a way that it becomes part of our life. It's an actual change in our very character and nature that proceeds over time until it kind of culminates um, in, in glorification after we die. Wow. Yeah, you just you don't hear you don't hear a lot of Protestants talk about it in that way. Um we got we got three minutes. This is kind of tied into it. Purgatory. How what is purgatory. Some of the, the Roman Catholic view of purgatory? Why do why did the reformers reject it? Can you tackle that in, in three minutes? Is that enough time? Um, sure. Let's see if I can get it done. Um so purgatory is kind of if you take that sanctification process that I was just talking about. Roman Catholics would deny um, – so Reformed would say that upon death, whatever's left in that process before we become Christ-like, that's kind of fast-forwarded. God finishes that process in an instant for us, um, and that's really possible because the Holy Spirit is always the driving force behind sanctification for the Reformed and for Lutherans. Um, and so whether God does that – whether the Holy Spirit does that as a process or whether he does it instantaneously really doesn't – doesn't really matter as much in the actual um, theology. So when we die, God just kind of finishes the process instantaneously. Um, The Roman Catholics would argue that, no, God has a process he's going to bring us through, and that process continues until it's done, and there's no fast-forward button um, to kind of use the language they would use to kind of characterize us. So upon death, if a person has not reached uh, that state of perfection, they go to this place called purgatory, which is um, the idea is that it's a place where we kind of finish out that sanctification. The temporal effects of our sin and our, our failures and our inability to be perfect is purged from us. That's why it's called purgatory. Um, it, throughout history, it's it's been imagined as anything from a, a fountain or like a bath to a burning fire, kind of a refiner's fire. Um, modern concepts, um, Pope Benedict questioned whether we were conscious or not, or whether it was something that was kind of done unconsciously, you know, is it painful, is it not painful? All of those things are floating around in Roman Catholic thought. Now, the reason, um, and if you ask different historians why uh, the Reformers objected to this, there's all sorts of reasons, so it'd be a little bit faulty to pin it down to just one. I think that the main issue is that it really undercuts the understanding of sanctification as, not entirely, but as uh, Holy Spirit-executed work. So even though the Holy Spirit uses our our works, our 
understandings, those things as means, it's still the Holy Spirit's work. So it's not right to call it monergistic like we would with justification um, or, or regeneration, but it, it's closer to that than it is to a synergy. The Roman Catholic position wants 20. to hold that sanctification. Yep. 30, 30, 30 seconds. Okay. The Roman Catholic position is that that position is primarily driven by our effort. So um, to have that extend past death and our effort even has to continue past death, I can see how the reformers would have a major problem with that. Good job, Tony. You've done uh, marvelous, <laughs> my friend. Love having you on the show. I know you probably uh, need to need to go get a big drink of water or something now. But well, thanks uh, appreciate for having you me. coming on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Look to Anytime. having you on again in the future. Thank your wife for letting us uh, pick your brains for for two hours. Really appreciate you coming on, brother. Will do. Have a good one. Blessings. Yep. God bless. All right, friends. Join us uh, next week. We are going to be back in the studios again, and let me see here. I know we've got some some good shows coming up. We will have uh, actually it'll be our 100th episode next week, and we're going to have our friend Steve Garfalo on to talk about moral uh, uh, absolutes. We'll also have uh, Dr. Phil Fernandez coming on. We're going to look at um, evidence for the historical Jesus, as well as our friend Jonathan McClatchy looking at intelligent design. So join us again next week. God bless.